You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a very popular topic amongst short-term rental investors, and that is whether or not mid-term rentals qualify as a short-term rental property or are they considered long-term rentals for tax purposes. And along the same lines, we have some interesting discussion around whether or not you actually round the average stay of customer use or the average period of customer use down, or is it actually taken out to the decimal point? And we're going to discuss all that in just a few minutes after a quick word from Dual City Investments. Conventional investment strategies are changing. Gone are the days of investing in real estate strictly off of pro forma spreadsheets. The new market landscape has many investors reevaluating their portfolios and looking for the best place to passively earn a safe, consistent return. The Dual City Advantage Fund is an evergreen 506C open-ended fund that specializes in investing in commercial real estate. Dual City's ideal investor is an accredited investor who wants a portion of their portfolio in passive and diverse real estate investments without having the high risks of a single syndication. The Dual City Advantage Fund is outpacing public REIT ETFs by more than double, and while the rest of the market has been in flux, it has delivered consistent quarterly returns to its investors since its inception. To learn more about Dual City's value, strategies, and long-term vision, visit DualCityInvestments.com or call 864-757-2429. Again, that's dualcityinvestments.com or call 864-757-2429. Without further ado, we'll jump right into today's episode. All right, so we are back. And like I said, we're gonna be talking about midterm rentals today. But before we dive into that, just some quick updates on what's going on with the TaxSmart Insiders community. Um, so we just wrapped up the Q1 masterclasses, including the passive activity rules, where Brandon went through an overview of the passive activity rules, then went through a masterclass on the real estate professional status and short-term rental properties. Then we did a masterclass with James Sevitek, who went through short-term rentals, including how to list your property to optimize its performance for maximum profits, streamlining your operations for efficiency, analyzing markets and properties to scale. That's all related to short-term rentals. So that is all available for replay within the insiders community. And then Taylor Brugna, who you'll hear from next week, he actually went ahead and did three masterclasses for us on assembling your remote team, how to manage your property manager, and the six types of real estate debt for long-term rentals. So if you want to go ahead and check those out, you can start your free trial to the TaxSmart Insiders community at www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash free trial. We're also going to be having some awesome masterclasses for Q2. So you don't want to miss those. So go ahead and start your free trial if you haven't already. We'll see you on the inside. But without further ado, we're going to dive right into today's episode. So a big question. Are midterm rentals considered short-term rentals? So now the answer would be no. And I think that it's important that we we sort of delineate a little bit to what we mean exactly by midterm rentals. Uh, you know, some of these terminologies will get sort of coined or thrown out there occasionally. So um, it's I think it's important to clarify that a little bit. When we're talking about short-term rentals specifically, we're really talking about properties that are qualifying for the short-term rental exception. So those would be properties that have an average stay of seven days or less. So what we would consider more of a midterm rental is pretty much going to be something that's in between that designation of average stay of seven and, and a traditional long-term rental, which would probably be, we'll just say like an annual rental. So the quote-unquote midterm rental, we would say is probably that that 30-day type of average stay, give or take, but that it's important to know that that is not outlined specifically by the tax code. By the way, I forgot to introduce Justin Shore, who you just heard from. 
who is an expert in this area. And we're going to be diving into all of this today. So thanks again, Justin, for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. So it kind of sounds like out there in the short-term rental investing community that these phrases get dubbed. We have one called the midterm rental. For tax purposes, midterm rental doesn't really exist, right? We have rental activities, which are defined in the tax code. Then we have the exceptions to the definition of rental activities, which has become known as the short-term rental loophole. And again, for anybody who is new to the show, if you have a property with an average period of customer use of seven days or less, it is not considered a rental activity and it is moved into like the general business bucket. So what ends up happening is you'll have short-term rental owners out there in the marketplace, and sometimes they'll get approached by guests and they'll want to stay maybe for 30 to 90 days, typically traveling nurses, traveling doctors, maybe traveling business people. They go and look to platforms like Airbnb and VRBO to find these quote unquote midterm rentals. And this leaves the short-term rental owner scratching their head. You know, is my property still going to be able to qualify for the short-term rental loophole, that average period is customer use is seven days or less if we, I do rent this out for 30 to 90 days. And if not, kind of what is it considered? What are midterm rentals considered? That was the genesis of this question. And as we look into this question, what we find is there is no such thing as a midterm rental. As I mentioned, they're either short-term rentals, so properties that qualify for one of these exceptions, or just regular rental activities. So if you have a midterm rental and you're renting it out for a period of 30 to 90 days, chances are in most cases, you're not going to be able to rent your property out for enough stays of under seven days. We've done the math on it before, virtually impossible to do um, to make it qualify for the short-term rental. So in other words, if you're renting out a midterm rental, it's going to be treated as any other traditional long-term rental property. And it's going to be passive by default unless you qualify for the real estate professional status. What's the uh, the 30-day rule, though? So the 30-day rule is one of the other exceptions um, that's also under the same regulation section as the short-term rental loophole is seven days or less. And that states that if you have an, a property with an average stay of 30 days or less and you provide substantial services, uh, which are hotel-like services such as daily cleaning, daily meals, vouchers, concierge, ride-sharing, things like that, for your guests while they're staying at your property, that that also is not considered a rental activity. However, in the context of most short midterm rentals that most investors are concerned with within the community, they're not providing these substantial services. They're merely renting out the space to the guest for a period of 30 to 60 days or 90 days in some cases uh, without providing any of these additional services. You said average stay of 30 days, and I want to clarify that it's an average period of customer use. So you could have a stay of 60 days and a stay of one day, and the average is 30 days between those two people, or I guess 30 point whatever it is. So just to just to clarify that. But yeah, you're right. So so what we're trying to draw a distinction between is in the Section 469 regulations, we either don't have a rental activity or we do have a rental activity, right? So that's that's what we're trying to figure out. Because if we do have a rental activity, then we also have to qualify as a real estate professional and materially participate in order to make that rental activity non-passive so that the tax losses can offset my regular income, my business income, my W-2 income, capital gain, interest dividends, all that type of stuff. So the short-term rental loophole allows us to avoid being classified as a rental activity under Section 469 as long as the average period of customer use is seven days or less. Right. So that's why everybody's like doing these short term rentals and they're trying to get around that, because if you can get around that, if you don't have a rental activity, then you don't have to qualify as a real estate professional. All you have to do is materially participate in the activity. 
and then you can use the tax losses to offset your other income. The significance is if you have to qualify as a real estate professional, you have to spend more time in real estate than anywhere else. So if you have a W-2 job or if you're like me and you run a business full time, you can't qualify as a real estate professional. So what people are doing is they're saying, well, I don't want a rental activity because if I have a rental activity, then I have to qualify as a real estate professional. And I can't qualify as a real estate professional because I work somewhere else full time. And that's one of the tests to real estate professional status. So I get kicked out of that. So instead, I'm going to avoid this classification of rental activity by running a short-term rental where my average period of customer use is seven days or less. Um, and if I can do that, then all I have to do is materially participate in the short-term rental, I almost said rental activity, but in the short-term rental, <laughs> um, all I have to do is materially participate. And there's seven tests of material participation. Uh, you got substantially all of your time. Um, all of your participation is substantially all the participation. Uh, you work 100 hours and more than anyone else, or you spend 500 hours in the activity. You just have to meet one of those three. There are seven, so you could look at the other four, but those are the three that we see most often. And we have a deep dive into this in earlier podcast episodes. So please go check those out. You can look for episodes that start with STR. So we like we did a special series on them rather than just numbering them like we normally do. Look, you can scroll down our podcast list and look for episodes that start with STR. And that's that deep dive. So that's what people are doing. But then the question becomes, well, like Tom was saying, if I have somebody that stays 30 days or if I have somebody that stays 60 days or 90 days, it's not a long term rental. It's not a short term rental. So I'm going to call it a midterm rental. But how does the IRS view it, right? And the IRS tax court, um, you know, these treasury regulations, they don't view it as a midterm versus short term. It's a rental activity or it's not a rental activity. And that's the key. So not a rental activity is what we're aiming for because we don't have to qualify as a real estate professional. So that's that seven days or less. The next step, though, if my average period of customer use is more than seven days, but if it's also less than 30 days and I provide significant personal services, right, then I don't have a rental activity again. So I can still have my average period of customer use be larger or higher than seven days. As long as it's less than 30 days, the average period of customer use, right? So I can have somebody stay for 90 days. That's fine. As long as the average period of customer use is less than 30 days. So if it's less than 30 days, but more than seven days, and I provide significant personal services, then I still do not have a rental activity. So the significant personal services, like Tom mentioned, I mean, that's going to be like, I'm providing cleaning services while the guest stays there. I'm changing their linens while the guest stays there. I'm providing special amenities that are beyond just the occupancy of the property, right? So I'm providing tours, I'm providing breakfasts and meals and and things like that. So if you are providing more of like an actual B&B experience, then you have a 30-day threshold rather than a seven-day threshold. That's kind of the point that we're trying to drive home. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that they, they kind of word it in a more general standpoint in the code is with those substantial services is essentially if you're offering the tenant anything that is something that's above and beyond them just being able to use the property itself, then all of those extra add-on type things are most likely going to fall into that substantial services category. So they definitely leave themselves a little bit of wiggle room <laughs> as far as being able to cast a, a wide net, so to speak, over what, what the, could be substantial services. Right, right. Kind of summarize here for the people who are wondering, right? So the, kind of like the bottom line here is if you're renting your property out for a 30 to 90 day period, 
theoretically, it's possible that you could still meet the seven day or less threshold. But practically speaking, in many situations, it's not going to occur. So it's not going to fall under that exception to the definition of a rental activity. Instead, it's going to be considered a rental activity. It's going to be passive by default unless you meet basically one of the exceptions, like maybe the special loss allowance or uh, the real estate professional status. So kind of the conclusion to this conversation regarding the midterm rentals, right? They're generally speaking, not going to be considered a short-term rental for the purposes of kind of applying the short-term rental loophole. Okay. Now we do have some very interesting kind of like topics along this line. And I know, Justin, like, like I said before, you've done a lot of research in this area. Sometimes what happens is you'll have an investor, they'll buy a duplex, they'll rent one unit out on a long-term lease, say like a traditional 12-month lease. Then they'll have the other that they're operating on a short-term basis on Airbnb or VRBO, what have you. So Justin, would you be able to kind of just talk a little bit about how that works in that situation? Sure, absolutely. So they actually address this fairly specifically in the treasury regulations where we see a lot of this information on the short-term rentals. And when you have a property that has that, not necessarily mixed use, but the two different sides, one that's you know, long-term or even a midterm, and then the other side is the short-term rental, we get that question fairly often of, well, does that mean that you know one half of my duplex qualifies for that short-term rental and the other half doesn't? How do I break it up? But unfortunately, the IRS looks at this as the duplex being one property as a whole, at least as far as for the purposes of determining what the average period of customer use is. And they have a pretty disadvantageous calculation that is outlined in the treasury regulations. And essentially the way that it works is you have to weight the average stay of the two different uses with how much revenue they are bringing in. So if you have typically with the short-term rental being a little bit higher rental revenue, it's going to wind up having more, a little bit more weight than the long-term rental side is. But what you have to do in this bizarre calculation is determine what the percentage of rental revenue is that's coming from the short-term rental versus the long-term rental side. And then you have to determine what the average period of customer use is for the short-term rental and the long-term rental side separately. And you have to take those two factors and multiply them together. So the percentage of revenue that's long-term multiplied times average period of customer use. And then same thing with the short-term rental side. Once you get those two numbers, you have to add them together. And that is determined to be the, the average period of customer use for the duplex. Now, without getting on the nitty gritty of all the numbers and details, if you kind of pencil this out on paper or like in an Excel document or something like that, you'll very quickly see that if you have a duplex that has a long-term rental side, even if it's not rented for the entire year, maybe it's only rented for 270 days, it is going to push the average period of customer use, most likely, again, depending on your revenue, it's going to push your average period of customer use way, way above seven. I mean, you know, upwards of like 90, 100, 110 days, something along those lines. So that's why I'd say it's very disadvantageous the way that they've laid out this calculation. Um, and we've ran the numbers on multiple different scenarios with this particular uh, consideration in mind. And I don't want to say it's impossible, but it is very, very difficult to uh, shift a property that has multiple units that has short-term and, and long-term mixed together because the way that they frame the calculation is so disadvantageous. It would be a little bit more feasible if you were short-term renting one side out and maybe mid-term renting the other. But even in that scenario, the numbers are typically still don't pencil out for the building to be below an average day of seven. That's great information. So kind of just to summarize what you said there, it kind of sounds like 
if you have a duplex or maybe another multifamily property where one or more units is being rented out on a long-term basis, you know, a traditional way, you know, with a 12-month lease or even with a midterm rental in many cases, the average stay of the building, because the average stay of the property is kind of determined at the building level, not at the unit level, that for the most part, it's not going to qualify for the the exception that allows you to use the short-term rental loophole. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's important to note there too, that there are so many different little caveats that can potentially apply to mixed-use buildings. This one specifically is very, very specific to just the average period of customer use. So there are other instances in the tax code that address mixed-use buildings like that, but at least for just the purposes of average period of customer use, we're effectively aggregating these days together. Right, right. That's that's important to know. And, you know, it, you know it's really funny as we're kind of talking here, it, it kind of hit me like, you know, a lot of people within the community believe it's just so simple, right? Like the short-term rentals, maintaining this exception is very simple. But as you kind of dig into it, you start seeing more and more and more cases of like it being used, you know, in the real world, you start to see all these complications. So it's not as simple. It's not as black and white. It's just having an average stay of seven days or less and materially participating. There's all these other factors that you have to kind of understand and make sure that you're not running afoul of if you're going to be using a complex and nuanced strategy like this. So make sure that you get with a tax professional, make sure you're working with somebody who understands these rules. Okay. Because you don't want to run afoul. If you run afoul, you get major tax savings for this. And all of a sudden you get audited or something like that happens and you lose, you might be facing significant back taxes, interest, and penalties. So very important to cross your T's and dot your I's on strategies like this. If you're not aware of a CPA that can help you or a tax professional that can help you, you can always check in with us at www.therealestatecpa.com slash become dash client. We'd love to have a conversation with you, Steve. If there's something that we can help with. But as we're talking about this, brings up another very, very interesting question. And that's a lot of times people ask, so if my average period of customer use is seven days, what if it's 7.1? What if it's 7.2, right? Do we round down to seven? So that's seven days or less. Or if it's 7.2, for example, or 7.5, whatever the case is, is it over seven days, right? So I know you've done a lot of research on rounding. How does the rounding work specifically within this context here? Yeah, it's very interesting, actually, because that's another item that is not explicitly stated in the tax code. So it's something that we have to dig into court cases to find a little bit more context in, in order to answer that question. And what we have found is that you cannot round at all. And there are some cases where they will carry the decimal point out and the calculations out to five or six decimal places. So very, very specific. The most notable one that I found while you know researching this in the, the last year was James V. Judith M. Patterson V. Commissioner. This is a summary opinion 2002-57, which is also very interesting because it's that means it's about 20 years old. But in this particular court case, they actually laid out all of the specific data that the taxpayer was using to determine what their average period of customer use was. Now, in this particular case, their average stay was 5.6, and they they cite that in the tax code. But what I love in particular about this one is they laid out so much detail about the average stays uh, when we're considering rounding. When I mentioned like sometimes they'll carry it out to six decimal places, is that this one was 5.6 on average, but that is because when you actually pencil their numbers out, it was exactly 5.60. So even in that case, they still went to that decimal point. So unfortunately, if you have that average stay of 7.1, 7.05, 7.2, 
that is going to be higher than 7.0. So your property would not qualify for the, the short-term rental loophole. Yeah, I think that's a very important distinction to clarify because sometimes, you know, there's these rare cases where someone will actually at the end of the year, they'll have their spreadsheet with all their with all the stays and they do the average and it's like 7.0, or 7.1. And it's just really important to understand it has to be seven days or less. And seven days or less means to be clear, 7.0, or less. If it goes over that, then it's not less than seven days, it's over seven days. So a uh, really important distinction. Uh, Justin, wanted to thank you for clarifying that. And I think mm-hmm. uh, this might be the last thing we have for today's episode. But I think you also found uh, some interesting things about rounding and material participation. Also, a very relevant point when talking about this strategy here. Yeah. So um, the other thing that we don't typically see in most of the court cases, as it you know concerns rounding, is Material participation hours, you know, we've talked extensively on the podcast, whether it was for real estate professional status or for the short-term rental exception, that uh, when we're looking at material participation, the time log needs to be very detailed. And we know that the tax court really does not like to see rounded figures. It's a bit of a red flag if you have a lot of four-hour, six-hour, eight-hour entries in your time log and don't have anything a little bit more specific, like 1.25, 1.5, something like that because it looks like you're making too many ballpark estimates. And typically the figures are either well over 750 for cases like real estate professional status that fractional hours don't really matter or the taxpayer is so far below material participation the tax court cases don't typically highlight it. However, one of the crown jewels of material participation that we see is the 500 hour test. And the main reason for that is if you hit 500 hours, you don't have to worry about that more than any other individual component that is attached to the 100 hours and more than any any other individual material participation test. And what was interesting in this, this tax court case that came out, it was a 2017 case. It was uh, Stephen Edward Ellison and uh, Stacey Suzanne Ellison, the commissioner, was they must have had a fairly detailed time log, but their totals actually came out to 499.85 hours. In that case, they failed material participation because they were short by that 0.15 hours. So another case of, unfortunately, uh, you can't round up. We were all trying to convince our teachers in grade school and high school, hey, the 89.5 is an A. Apparently, the tax court case uh, says essentially, or the tax court system says the same thing. Maybe our teachers were actually preparing us for real life. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's definitely an interesting observation. So I think we covered a lot in today's episode. I want to thank everybody for listening. Justin, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. So if you want to get in touch with Justin, you want to learn more about Justin, what he has going on, you want to maybe work with Justin. Justin is very active within our TaxSmart Insiders community. So again, you could become an insider by starting a 30-day free trial by going to www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash free trial and you can go ahead and get started today but that's it for today's episode want to thank everybody again for listening we'll catch you on the next episode of tax smart rei